0: And if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change.
1: Today's guest is Tom Green, CEO and co-founder of Vesta, which is tackling the dual problem of shoreline erosion due to sea level rise and carbon emission reduction with an olivine sand that speeds up the ocean's natural carbon cycle. They call it coastal carbon capture and it's one form of the broader category of carbon dioxide removal solutions known as enhanced rock weathering. The ocean is one of nature's largest carbon sinks, and it's already absorbed upward of 30% of cumulative human emissions. The olivine sand that Vesta deploys into the ocean accelerates this process dramatically, creating a form of permanent and durable carbon sequestration. Tom and I have a great chat about the many stakeholders at play in the projects they consider, from local communities, to the impact on various types of sea life itself, and the ecotoxicology studies that Vesta produces. We talk about the nature of olivine and how Vesta sources it, and we talk about how Vesta determines what shorelines are a good target for coastal carbon capture. Vesta also has a very unique corporate setup in that they started their journey as a nonprofit research group that has continued on as a 501 c three called Coastal Carbon Capture Impact Fund. Vesta PBC, the for-profit public benefit corporation that Tom is CEO of, emerged later as a way to pursue scaled commercial projects leveraging the nonprofit research. And the two groups continue to work together, though they have separate governance structures and economics. My tech brain thinks of this a bit like the climate tech version of open source software, a public good and a commercial instantiation of that public good that's set up to invest in growth via commercialization. I learned a lot from Tom about the intricacies of coastal carbon capture and hope you do too. Tom,
2: welcome to the show. Thanks Cody, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I am so interested to understand the whole area that you're focused on in terms of the ocean's role in our carbon cycle and in particular the ocean's role as a carbon sink. It's not lost on me that the ocean is a very large carbon sink, but you know, thinking about using the ocean as a business model for climate change is something that, you know, me with my sort of background in software-based business models doesn't naturally jump to mind. So I'm really interested to learn from you like what that looks like and how that will evolve as you go. But maybe start with a bit on your background and a bit on how the company has evolved because as I understand it, you know, the company has this really unique evolution in that it began its sort of life as a as a not-for-profit and a sort of, in addition to that, evolved into including a for-profit business in the climate tech space?
2: Happy to. So I trained as a biologist originally, and when I was studying science, it was already clear, this is 23 years ago, it was already clear that the climate was heading for crisis and that we would get to the point that we're at now. And I think maybe it's happened a little bit faster than some people thought it would. At the time, I actually wanted to work in climate, but there was no climate tech ecosystem. There was no MCJ or you know climate investors really. And so I put a pin in that for a while and spent about a 20 year career working in a variety of things from financial services to tech to consulting, and then sort of took a bit of a career break and took a step back and reflected on what impact I wanted to have in the world.
1: I mean, Tom, actually, before you even go into that, like, I think it's really important to name some of the places you were, because some of our listeners who don't work in climate at all often wonder, like, how in the world can I start working in climate? And, you know, you worked at places like, I think, Capital One and Bain and Lending Club and places that definitely were not climate companies, <laughs> as far as I understand it.
2: Definitely. Well, I think, and yes, you named the main places I worked, and, and I think the... The thing that I was focusing on was working in places where I felt like I could learn as much as possible. And I think a lot of the skills that come from those kind of environments are transferable if you're willing to dive in and go back a little bit to square one on some of the knowledge and just learn and be a sponge. I will say that having having studied science has really helped me to come up to speed and to do this role. So I took that sort of step back and reflected, and basically my feeling was this climate crisis is the biggest problem the world is facing, likely the biggest problem humanity has ever faced. If I'm not going to be working on that, then what am I doing here? And, you know, feeling into that, I basically decided that I was going to find something to do in climate and came across my co-founders who were exploring a range of different ways to help out. And we sort of zeroed in on CDR, carbon dioxide removal, as an area that at this point is very much needed. And as I'm sure most of your listeners already know, you know, some people get concerned about the quote unquote moral hazard of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and ask the question well shouldn't we reduce emissions and 30 years ago that would have been great you know would have would have been great if we could have followed that path of simply reducing emissions but we didn't and so now we have an extra trillion tons plus of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere we have a crisis on our hands that is not a future crisis It's, it's here today you have tens of millions of people displaced by flooding in pakistan right now for example And so we need to do CDR. CDR had attracted less investment and less attention than emissions reduction and emissions reduction a lot of the technologies have already been developed and now it's a question of political and public will to make them happen whereas CDR is much more of an open field where we actually still need to develop things. So then we zeroed in on the oceans and this is maybe a moment to talk about what you were alluding to before around what is the role of the oceans in carbon removal. So there are a couple of different ones, and I think it's important for everybody to understand what role the oceans play in carbon removal. So there's a long-term carbon cycle called the carbonate silicate cycle, and this is nature's way of turning atmospheric carbon dioxide into rock. So 99.9% of the carbon on the planet is stored in rocks, and the oceans are how it gets there. So the way this works is that rain falling on certain types of rocks causes these rocks to dissolve a little bit and carbon dioxide dissolved in that water actually ends up being used by animals like corals and shell forming out animals in the form of calcium carbonate in those shells and skeletons. When those animals die, they form marine sediment, which settles down onto the ocean floor and hardens into limestone and is then subducted into the Earth's crust. So that's nature's extremely powerful way of sequestering carbon dioxide in a long-term basis.
1: Diving in with a sort of obligatory tipping point question there, as we are facing things like coral reef dieback and the like, Is there a point at which it actually starts to damage the long-term carbon cycle?
2: Yeah, so as what you're referring to there is coral reefs are in trouble. There are estimates that suggest that all coral reefs will be gone by the end of the century, and potentially 90% will be gone by 2050. That is certainly not good news for many reasons, including the impact on the long-term carbon cycle. The reality is that this is a very slow cycle that happens over geological time. And so that's good for what it's been used for, but it's not very helpful for our current purposes. What we need is accelerated ways of removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Now, before I dive into how we accelerate that long term, that portion of the long term carbon cycle, I'll just note that the oceans have played a pretty major role in interacting with the changes to the climate so they've absorbed 90% of the extra heat and they've actually absorbed 30% of the extra carbon dioxide but not in this long-term storage way they've absorbed it as carbonic acid which is purely dissolved carbon dioxide in the water so carbonic acid that's what makes your your fizzy drinks fizzy so we're effectively turning the ocean into a into a fizzy drink
1: so the oceans are getting hotter and they're getting more acidic, which presumably also, I don't know if the, how the heat might influence their ability to continue to absorb CO2 at the same rate, but I assume the acidification does impact that for sure.
2: Yeah, well, the acidification is a form of absorption of CO2, but unfortunately, as in absorbing this, they've become 30% more acidic than they were before the industrial revolution and that is contributing to collapse of marine ecosystems so that's a, a really challenging situation for the oceans
1: and another tipping point i assume is in addition to this the carbon cycle you laid out you know the ocean also has you know algae whether macroalgae like kelp and things like that or microalgae or phytoplankton or all of these other forms of sea life that i believe also absorb co2 and yet I assume this acidification process is starting to also damage them in addition to the coral reefs that we talked about. Is that is that a correct assumption?
2: For sure. So, you know, I'm definitely not a marine biologist here. the, The oxygen we breathe comes from plants and about half of that comes from plants in the ocean whether it's macroalgae or phytoplankton and so on and the worse the health of the oceans becomes the more at risk that is so that's you know that's like as we damage the amazon rainforest then that reduces the ability of that rainforest to absorb co2 and turn it into oxygen same thing in the oceans so that's another another problem
1: so you you all have been working on this sort of accelerated solution to this which it doesn't get positioned as quote unquote you know now i'm going to say what many assume to be a climate bad word of geoengineering but that's essentially what you're doing like you are you know building a model that transforms how our coastlines work in terms of materials that flow from land to sea and into atmosphere like am i wrong to kind of think of it that way
2: Well, I want to address the G word, So, and there are different definitions of of geoengineering. What I think is most helpful is to distinguish between solutions which redress the imbalances that we've created in the atmosphere itself. And so whether that's planting trees, reducing emissions, building a direct air capture plant, or doing what we do, which is called coastal carbon capture, fundamentally, what we're doing there is we are trying to reverse the excess CO2 emission situation in the atmosphere. When I think about geoengineering, I think about things like solar radiation management, where we're actually pulling on other levers to try to, for example, reduce the amount of sunlight that is hitting the Earth or being absorbed by it. And so, the class of solutions that I would call geoengineering would be would be those ones. We think of ourselves as a nature-based carbon dioxide removal solution, and it's nature-based because we're accelerating this natural geological process.
1: Yeah, that's super helpful and, and, and a good distinction, right, between, you know, hey, we're trying to undo the damage that's been done versus we're trying to simply, you know, play defense and block it out, which I think is is how, you know, most geoengineering solutions have been positioned to date. Exactly, yeah. Okay, so now maybe explain the origins of Vesta. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the macro environment. I'd love to understand how the company came to be in terms of the nonprofit research arm that you have and now the, the for-profit entity so that we can start to talk about what the, what the actual solution looks like that, that you're deploying.
2: For sure. Well, I'll say that along with many ideas that people are trying to bring to the climate crisis, This idea had actually been sitting out there for a while. So it was first proposed in 1990 in a letter to nature. And since that time, there's been a fair amount of research that has come out of universities around the world looking at different aspects of- Who wrote the original letter?
1: There has to be an interesting origin story there, I assume, or if not, then hey, good to know. (laughs)
2: Yeah, so, well, actually, I'll I'll point to somebody called Olaf Skyling, who didn't actually write the original letter, but was really somebody, he's sort of known as the godfather of enhanced weathering. He was the one who sort of stuck his neck out a lot. And he, he recently passed away, unfortunately, but someone who stuck his neck out a lot, proposing that this really could be a workable solution in the face of a lot of, in the face of a lot of skepticism. But there's been, at this point, a decent amount of serious research coming out of academic institutions into the various different aspects of how this works. And it's it's probably time for me just to say what it is, because I think we're we're, we're overdue. Sure, that. there is.
1: I guess before we name I mean, name it, there's a huge research center, I think, in the UK that's focused on this. Right? For for those who want to go really deep on this topic, you know, maybe you could help point them to that resource.
2: Yeah, well, so the, I'm not sure if you're referring to the Leverhulme Center. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah, they, that's it.
2: But they focus on terrestrial weathering. Okay, good distinction. We'll get into that distinction. Yeah, rather than ocean weathering. So, anyway, this is how it works. So, what we do is we take an igneous mineral called olivine, it's a silicate mineral. We dig it out of the ground, we grind it into sand, and we transport that sand to the ocean in coastal areas. And once the sand gets into the ocean, it gradually dissolves in the water, helped by the wave action. And so this is an important point. The natural free wave energy of the ocean actually helps the sand to grind down and to dissolve. As it dissolves, it adds alkalinity to the ocean water. So we already talked about ocean acidification. This counteracts that process of ocean acidification. And in doing so, it causes the ocean to absorb more carbon dioxide, but not as carbonic acid. We absorb it as a molecule called bicarbonate, which you may be familiar with as, as baking soda. So in summary, the way the process works is we grind up a mineral called olivine into sand and spread that sand in the ocean in coastal areas.
1: So where does the olivine come from?
2: So olivine is found all over the world. It's actually, if you talk to a geologist, what they'll tell you is that olivine is one of the most abundant minerals on the planet. It actually is present in very large deposits all over the world and doesn't have too many uses today, which is a great thing because we're going to need a lot of it if this solution is going to scale. So it's found all over the world.
1: Is it the same as the sort of gemstone peridot? Is that correct?
2: Yes, peridot is an example of olivine so peridot is the gemstone form of olivine and some people know it as uh, as one of the one of the 12 birthstones it's this green mineral
1: so it's it's abundant throughout the world you presumably in order to set up your your business need to find mined deposits of it somehow is it a byproduct of the mining industry typically in some way shape or form or where are you finding it sort of hanging around that you can crush it and turn it into sand
2: yeah, well, so it has some uses today, and so it is being mined for its own sake. In addition, it is often co-located with precious metals like nickel in deposits. And so in mining, there's this thing called tailings. Tailings are the waste of mining. So when you dig through some rocks to find the rocks you're really looking for, the excess is called tailings. And there are a lot of olivine tailings lying around in mines all over the world. So as you can imagine, that makes us pretty happy because what we want to do is use that excess byproduct that nobody has any other use for and turn it into sand and use it to help fight climate change.
1: So let me let me ask a sort of obvious, at least to me, sort of question that comes from that, which is nickel, I believe is a heavy metal. If you're diving into the residue of nickel mining to find olivine, is there any risk that you're depositing heavy metals into the ocean?
2: There is some nickel in olivine. The concentration of nickel in the tailings that exist is much, much lower than in the rocks that are actually being extracted in order to harvest the nickel from those. Yeah, by design,
1: I guess, right? You're, you're particularly wanting to remove the valuable nickel, but there's certainly still got to be some residue.
2: There is still some, yeah. And, you know, this is one of the key questions in our research agenda is fundamentally, we want to help fight climate change, but we don't want to do that if it's going to cause other damage to the environment. And so we've done what's called ecotoxicology testing, where we actually expose marine organisms to olivine and, and therefore to the nickel in it and see how it affects them. And we've done that at much higher concentrations than we expect to see in field deployments. And so far what we've found is that there hasn't been any effect on these marine organisms. Having said that, and we can talk a little bit about where we are in our process in a moment, but we have a pilot field deployment live, and at that deployment, we are doing extensive ecological monitoring, and we're also starting small. This is a technique which, if everything looks good, we hope to be able to scale and really bring it to large scales, and that's one of the things we're most excited about with this is that it is a, process that's fundamentally very scalable and has the potential to get to billions of tons of carbon dioxide removal per year. But at the same time, we're not starting with billions of tons. We're starting with hundreds of tons in order to make sure that we really build a robust scientific understanding of how this works at a small scale. So we can understand the carbon removal at a small scale. We can understand the ecological effects at a small scale. Because we reduce ocean acidity, there could be some benefits there to marine organisms but then also there could be some risk as well and, and nickel is probably the, the the one that people talk about the most and so we're monitoring all of that very carefully
1: yeah i mean i would presume i don't know and you'll correct me i'm sure if i'm if i'm wrong that you know to build a business in this space you have to be really good at kind of two key things in addition to in addition to the environmental monitoring that you're doing which is one you have to be good at logistics, right? You have to be good at transporting and sourcing these materials, this olivine material from these nickel tailing pools or wherever you're sourcing it from because you're needing to then get it to a body of water. And then two, you need to be good at measuring its effectiveness as a carbon sink and in terms of identifying any potential deleterious effects, like you mentioned, in terms of ecotoxicology, etc., on sea life. Let's maybe start, I I definitely want to talk about the the latter part on measurements, both of the carbon impact as well as the sea life impact and kind of how that that looks for you. But let's start on the transport and logistics side, you know, the quote unquote big boring side of the business, which is, last I checked, a truck full of sand was very heavy. (laughs) So how you're actually getting this stuff from point A to point B as a business, you know, in a scalable way.
2: Well, I'll start by saying I wish there were only two things we had to be good at. One of the challenging and really fun things about about this is that there are so many different aspects to it so from a scientific perspective there's the geochemistry there's the ecology there's what's called the geomorphology which is how does the sand move in a coastal environment there's the coastal engineering how do we actually deploy the sand then of course you've got things like the permitting how do we get permits to do this And that's something that we've now done in the US. So there's quite a few different aspects to it. In terms of the logistics, we have partners. We work with partners to organize the supply chain. As you can probably imagine, as a startup, we're not in the mining business, nor are we buying ships. So we work with supply chain partners to source the olivine, to grind it, to ship it, and then to deploy it. And it gets deployed typically from barges, in the coastal in the coastal environment, and actually one of the you know one of the things that I mentioned before is the scalability here. So yes, you know, sand is heavy, but actually deploying a million tons of sand in the ocean is not so different from deploying a thousand tons. It is fundamentally, in many ways, actually easier. You know, a typical bulk carrier is at least a seventy-five thousand ton capacity. So it gets a lot cheaper on a per ton basis to transport larger amounts than than smaller amounts. And that, I think, is something that is quite distinctive about this model compared with more engineered technological approaches to carbon removal. You know, When you are scaling up a plant from 1x to 10x to 100x, the set of engineering challenges that you have to deal with at each level of scale are fundamentally different and new each time. Whereas the set of engineering challenges we have to deal with each time are actually much more similar to one another. And so it creates a very scalable process.
1: We're gonna take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option.
3: Hey folks, Ian here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, Idea Jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show.
1: All right, back to the show. On the deployment into the ocean, I saw a news article that you had signed a partnership, I think, with a, a large dredging company. Is that is that what that is for? The basically, you know, how sand gets deployed into the into the into the seabed?
2: Yes, we signed a partnership with a company called Great Lakes Dredge and Dock, which they started in the Great Lakes, but now they're actually the US's largest dredging company. And so they do a lot of this this work. This is probably a good moment for me to mention coastal nourishment. So with sea levels rising and storms getting stronger and stronger, and of course, we're seeing this all the time at the moment, we're now in hurricane season shorelines are eroding and coastal homes, coastal habitats, and coastal assets are all, are all at risk. And so in the U.S. alone, 60 million tons of sand are moved each year to protect coastlines and restore eroded beaches. And so what we've been doing is actually working with that industry. So even though this we're doing something that's very new here, we're actually working with a very old industry and partnering with that industry so there are established processes for how you deploy sand in the coastal environment and there are established mechanisms for permitting that kind of activity and so we have by fitting in with this industry and partnering with it and working with it we've been able to find ways to i think frankly work more quickly more efficiently than if we had been just trying to sort of do this from scratch
1: We'll definitely get on the permitting because you mentioned that was one of the the areas of your business you've had to get good at. The second one you mentioned besides logistics was, I think, related to what you were just talking about, which is understanding the flow of surface water, understanding the movement of sand, understanding, I assume, through software and technology that you're building, where you should be deploying this olivine sand in terms of having maximum effectiveness as a carbon sink, but also in terms of having presumably the, the appropriate effectiveness on the shore line itself.
2: Exactly. So where to deploy is this quite complex multi-parameter optimization problem, right? That includes things like oceanographic factors, like the wave energy, the temperature of the water, the specific geomorphology of that coastline but also other factors like what country are you doing it in? What is the permitting environment there or the openness to doing carbon removal? And then you've also got logistical factors such as where is the olivine coming from, you know, the transportation distance. Obviously, the further we ship the olivine, the more carbon is emitted in the process of doing that. Now, our LCA suggests that this process is roughly 95% efficient. So for every ton of CO2 we emit in the supply chain, we remove about 20 tons. But of course, we want that ratio to be as favorable as possible. And so logistical factors also also feed into you know, where we decide to deploy.
1: And how far offshore are you typically deploying?
2: So we have one deployment that is is now live so we performed a pilot deployment in the hamptons in long island 650 tons of olivine sand and that sand was actually placed on the beach so there was an existing planned beach nourishment project which the local town of southampton did and we talked to them and they became excited about what we're doing and decided to add olivine to this project. And so in that case we deployed on the beach. In future projects though, we plan to deploy more in the nearshore environment. It's more scalable and it's more efficient to do that, but in this first project we were really focusing on the for the first one measurability and the way to maximize the measurability of that particular project was to do it on the beach. You
1: mentioned, you know, wave action being an important part of the cycle earlier on. So I'm presuming kind of the target zone for you is somewhere kind of along the surf break. Is that typically where you would ideally deploy?
2: We want to deploy in areas where there is some natural motion of water. So between the beach and an area called the depth of closure, which is the coastal engineering term for the place where there is limited movement of water and the exact place where we deploy and how far out it depends very much on the specific location. So we have models that we build for each location that enable us to optimize where we place the olivine, balancing the efficiency of carbon removal with any potential shoreline protection benefit that may come from placing the olivine.
1: Yeah, and talk about any any technology that you, you all have developed that helped that aid you in, in making those recommendations.
2: Well, so far, there's a lot of modeling work that we've done. So people have thought a lot before about how to put sand in the coastal environment.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, that's not a climate problem. That's just a general... Coastline management problem, right? Yeah,
2: so that's a well-established part of part of coastal engineering. But what people hadn't thought about before was how to do that with olivine, which is, by the way, different and has a different density and so on, but also how to do that in a way that instead of optimizing for building up a new beach – optimizes for carbon removal and it turns out that the ways you do that are actually quite different and so we've built proprietary models that enable us to figure out the best ways to deploy in any given site that's one set of developments that we've created there's also of course site selection and I touched on that a little bit but thinking about the geospatial analysis combined with permitting and country analysis combined with the logistical analysis and then something that you touched on before and wanted to dive into, we haven't quite got to yet, maybe now's a good moment, is is the measurement. So something that we're very focused on is how do you measure the carbon that's being removed from the dissolution of olivine. And so we're still at a relatively early stage. We have one pilot deployment live, and we have our team has been developing the ways to measure it and experimenting with different ways to most effectively measure carbon removal in this process. And so that's something that we are still developing. And are there any
1: existing known methodologies for this? Or I'm guessing you all are on the, the front end of, of trying to work with the carbon marketplaces to determine what those even would be. Is that, is that a correct assumption?
2: Yeah, ocean alkalinity enhancement is, is a field that a lot of people are very excited about, including those who, the carbon credit registries and so on. And we're also very much at the leading edge of that. And so what we have done is we have established a basic framework for how this is going to work. From a scientific perspective, what we're doing here is adding alkalinity To the ocean water and so there are ways to measure that and there are ways to measure and calculate how that alkalinity converts into co2 removed but there's a lot of devil in the details what kind of sensors do we use how do we deploy them what is the spatial resolution needed exactly how do the models work and so on so we've got the basic framework in place and there's a lot of alignment on how that framework looks but there's also a lot of devil in the details
1: and is the business model of Vesta to sell carbon credits? Is that the is that the business that you're building? And, and if so, is everything up to that point, essentially a cost center for the business? Or are there other points of monetizing, beach restoration, etc, that you also can support the business with?
2: So we started as a nonprofit, by the way, should I just take a moment and dive into that?
1: Yeah, please do. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we've touched on that a couple of times but haven't haven't dived into it. So now's a great time to paint that history.
2: So in terms of history, we actually started as a nonprofit. We launched on Earth Day 2019. And the reason we were a nonprofit was because we hadn't determined what the business model would be yet and because what we wanted to do was really foster open source research to start to develop this field. About a year ago, so in late 2021, we were ready to transition to a for-profit company, and that is a form of company known as a public benefit corporation or a PBC. So a PBC is a company that can focus more on its mission than profit. And we have put in place actually a hybrid structure that enables us to have both that for-profit company, the PBC, and also a non-profit, a 501c3, which is a separate fund. And the the 501c3 fund enables funding to go to a foundational research that's charitable in nature, that's in the public benefit, and that'll be published open source. And it's very important for that to happen because it fosters the kind of transparency we need in this emerging field, and it enables philanthropists to fund important climate research. At the same time, in order to bring this kind of solution to scale, clearly we're going to need a business model. Nothing can get to the kind of scale we need to get to without that.
1: That's not a non-controversial statement. I should add, those of us in climate tech sort of, I think, take that as, as truth. But 15 years ago, the climate movement definitely did not embrace that statement. So I just want to acknowledge that. That, to me, is a signal of the changing tides, to use a pun, of how much the climate tech movement has is shaping the narrative around how we ultimately solve for climate
2: change. Agreed. In order to have an impact at a planetary scale, we're going to need to move around billions of tons of rock and remove billions of tons per year of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And that's going to take tens of billions of dollars per year. In order to see that kind of capital flowing, we're going to need an economic model which can actually work. And that's just not going to happen through philanthropy alone. And you know, we need to be realistic about that. I mean, capitalism has shown that it can move billions of tons of rock around when there is an economic incentive for that to happen. And so that's the path that's already been forged and that we now need to co-opt for good instead of for extraction and putting more co2 into the atmosphere at the same time there's really a important role for philanthropy to play here in a couple of ways one is that there's basic research that needs funding and sometimes when I talk to philanthropists they ask me well how do I know that this money that I'm putting in isn't sort of just a money pit. How do I know you won't need the same amount every year for the next 10 years because I can't afford that? And what I'm able to say is, well, actually, you're helping to create the foundations of a field here. And at the same time, we're developing a business model that means that this will actually be self-sustaining in the future. And that's a powerful message, I think. The other thing I'll mention in terms of how the role that philanthropy can play is in the world of project finance. So, there's this thing that I'm sure many listeners have heard of called the second valley of death. And so, what this is, is when you have developed a process and you now need large amounts of capital to invest in infrastructure in order to deploy it, then project finance is the right way to do that, right? You have this large upfront cost and then a revenue stream that gets delivered over time. But until you've done it a few times, people won't give you commercial project finance. And so you're in this catch 22 or second valley of death where you need the project finance to do the deployments, but you don't qualify for it yet. And what we're seeing is that philanthropy can actually play a role in bridging that gap by providing project finance style loans to finance early deployments in order to help us bridge that gap and get to the point where we can actually qualify for standard sort of commercial project finance.
1: And I'm so fascinated by all this, Tom, because the the governance aspect of building a business in this space isn't something we're always spending time on, we're, we're usually focused on the, the technology and the business model and the scalability and the cost and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm I'm super interested to hear a few things from you. I'm going to load you up with questions, tackle them in the order that you, you wish. One, do you have to manage conflict of interest between the for-profit business and the non-profit in terms of what IP you can use, um, how you can leverage the work that the non-profit entity is doing? And and are you actually technically the head of both of those entities, Two, oftentimes when companies get really big, then they establish a foundation and they start to do good. And oftentimes it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, they have good intentions, but it's also a nice tax benefit. You guys started the opposite direction, which is you started as the foundation and you've grown the nonprofit from there. And I'm wondering what lessons learned you have there should other people who are listening want to follow that same model.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, in terms of the in terms of the structure that we have, so it's important for people to understand that these are two separate entities. So, I don't have any control over the nonprofit. It's purely an arm's length relationship. The nonprofit exists to further the science of coastal carbon capture, and it does not generate IP for the company. So. There's no sort of conflict of interest there. It enables the open source research to happen through nonprofit funding and then R&D and IP development to happen through through for-profit funding. I mean, In terms of lessons learned, I, mean, I think that the main one that I would want people to understand is that this is, I think, an unusual model, but one that has a lot of benefits where there is a genuine charitable purpose. That can be advanced through philanthropic funding and so you know for anybody who is in a similar position to us and and i guess the main thing would be in our example our process involves the commons it involves the ocean and there is a great need for transparency and a need for foundational research and and so given that there is a need for or an opportunity for philanthropists to fund open source research. And so if you're in that situation then you're welcome to reach out to me and I'm happy to talk more detail about how we put this hybrid structure in place and how it works.
1: I mean I, to me that's so fascinating because you think I mean climate change is a commons problem, right? That's the the crux of the issue is that the you know the externalities of independent businesses have affected the commons of all of us and it seems like whether you're working in oceans and have local coastline organizations that maybe want to fund research or, or find solutions that could be local to them, whether you're working in forests and, you know, you're working with trees and you have similar, you know, state or national forests that are trying to fund, you know, research related to forestry work, whether you're working in soils and you have agricultural lands or the like that local communities that are wanting to fund things. It feels like this model could apply to lots of different climate tech areas where, there is still a lot of foundational knowledge to be gathered in order to scale a potential impact through a a for-profit arm. I guess not arm, it's a separate for-profit initiative, to be clear.
2: Agreed. Yeah, and an example would be ecological monitoring. It is in everybody's interest in the world that that happen, that we monitor coastal carbon capture deployments from an ecological perspective. And it's in everybody's interest that that is not used to create IP, but is published transparently. And so that's the kind of thing that, by the way, will be available to, you know, if if Vesta competitor comes along and wants to do the same thing, which I imagine will happen at some point, at least maybe when things, things are a little bit more proven, then that competitor deserves to have access to that same ecological data. And so it's in the public benefit and it's charitable.
1: It reminds me of the open source software movement to some extent, right? You've got... WordPress started as an open source project, it ended up becoming a company called Automatic, which scaled WordPress through a web-based application Right as an example. But anyone could have built that business, the technology was open for anyone to use, which is, is a really interesting analogy to think about from a climate change perspective. It may not be the software itself that's the open source component, it may be the, the research IP.
2: Yeah, agreed. I think there's since we're talking about IP and how this spreads, I think there's there's another aspect that's important as well, which is that what we want to do here is not keep this all for ourselves. We want to develop it and develop the technology and actually license that out to other organisations that want to use it as well. And right now, it's still it's still early. We're still hoping to demonstrate that this works, and there are any number of reasons why it might not. But if it does, then creating the roadmap for how to do it will be something that is very useful for the world and we're going to be looking to license that out and one of the reasons for licensing it out is because we will also want to make sure that it's always being done in a way that is ecologically safe and responsible and so by having something that people need in order to do it we can hold that back and say well you get this stuff but only if you promise to do it in these ways and live up to these principles and engage with local communities. Something we haven't talked about, uh, but very, very important to us that we engage deeply with local communities and that we're not doing this to people, but that we're doing it with them. Or even better, that it's actually projects that are led by the local communities. And so that is something that we would always do ourselves, but also require other organizations who license RIP to do as well. So
1: I think one of the interesting things about that is... So much about building a company that is working on climate to me at least involves rethinking how how we do business in general and if you take to that to the extreme it's you know theories of degrowth and and this that and the other i think there is a role for capitalism in in solving climate change as you and i discussed earlier But it doesn't mean capitalism has to look like 20th century extractive capitalism. And what I'm hearing you say, at least, is so much of building this business is doing so by engaging all the stakeholders involved in building the company. Some of those stakeholders are the marine life that you are doing a lot of research to ensure you're not damaging, which you can talk more about. I'd love to hear you talk more about that. And some of those stakeholders are people who live in the coastal communities who have a lot of thoughts and ideas for how they should be restoring their coastlands, making their coastlands resilient for climate change, supporting their communities as sea level rise continues to be a problem or this, that, and the other. And I'm just interested to hear how that's going for you.
2: We engage deeply with local communities where we do our work. And so I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. So our first deployment was in the Hamptons, which and everybody feels very sorry for all of the billionaires who live on beachfront property in the Hamptons. But nonetheless, it was important to us to talk to them, to get their perspectives, to hear what they thought about climate change and nature-based solutions like this one, to answer all the questions they had and ultimately to make it their decision. if they didn't want to bring coastal carbon capture to their shoreline, then we weren't going to try to force it on them. And they chose that they did want to do that. And it's been a really good collaboration with the local community there. At the other end of the spectrum, a project that we're planning for next year is in the Dominican Republic. And the local community there is a low income community, small village. And there we have been engaging actually very deeply for well over a year and involving them in the process through a participatory governance approach. And we found them to be very supportive of what we're doing. They see the changes in the weather that we all see, and they want to be part of the, of the solution. And another thing we're doing in underserved communities like that one is putting in place give back programs, where we make sure that we help the local community in ways that they co-develop with us so we're not wanting to come in and say well this is what we think you need what we do is we ask them what they need and work with local community leaders to establish how we can invest in them and so in the Dominican Republic we have been creating a program for local women to buy sewing machines and get trained in how to use them so they can build businesses themselves and have more economic autonomy. And so we always want to engage deeply with the local community in what we're doing and also leave it better than we found it.
1: Thanks for, for sharing those stories. I think it really helps to paint the picture. And to me, again, it's, it's so... Is so important for companies that are working in the public good to engage everyone who is affected by their potential technologies. And it's heartening to hear that, that that's been something you guys are taking seriously. And I'd love to hear maybe a bit about how you're also similarly working under the water to understand the impacts of your technology there
2: sure so when we think about our stakeholders we have we have a lot of stakeholders and some of them are the marine organisms that live in the water and so We have comprehensive ecological monitoring plans at any site that we do in order to make sure that we fully understand the impact of coastal carbon capture. We see ourselves as building a business, but also as a rigorous scientific research outfit. So we have 13 PhDs on staff and we see the scientific community as key stakeholders in our process. And so, We are committed to doing robust and rigorous research to understand the ecological effects of doing coastal carbon capture so that as a society, we can make the right trade-offs so we can understand whether the benefits of doing it are worth the risks and and the costs. And we're just here to understand understand it as best as possible. And we're really open to whatever that data show. Sometimes when we think about stakeholders, you know, we have the local communities we have the organisms that live in the sand we also have the people the voiceless people and and organisms who have not come into this world yet and who will be inheriting the world that we are creating and so we're always trying to keep in mind that stakeholder as well and that's one of the things that gets us going in the morning is that we are ultimately working on a mission here that that is all about leaving a thriving biosphere for future generations. And I
1: guess to that point, how did you decide on this particular solution? And I I could ask that question way up and down the sort of decision tree, but let's just go to the decision tree of enhanced rock weathering. How did you decide to focus on coastal-based enhanced rock weathering as opposed to terrestrial or agricultural enhanced rock weathering? We, We recently had a couple of companies on the pod in Lithos Carbon and Eon Carbon who are doing agricultural rock weathering and got to understand their business model and got to understand sort of the how and why they're focused where they are. And I'm curious what led you down the path of, of working directly with coastlines.
2: As we looked at different CDR solutions, we were looking for something that is permanent carbon dioxide removal, that is very scalable and that is cost effective at scale. And as we scanned the landscape of different solutions, we found that coastal enhanced weathering was the one that was best on all three of those dimensions. And as we looked into it more deeply, we found that there were quite a few other benefits as well. So it is highly energy efficient. It requires very little energy input because the ocean does so much of the work for us. It doesn't require any changes in land use or fresh water, so it doesn't compete for these scarce resources. It has co-benefits such as counteracting ocean acidification and adding to coastal resilience it's got these sort of future-proofed elements to it. So when you put the olivine in the sea, it is then going to remove CO2 from the atmosphere for many years without any maintenance. So it just sort of does its work. And actually, the more acidic the oceans get and the warmer the oceans get, the more efficient coastal carbon capture becomes. So it's got a little bit of a governor baked in there that the worse things get, the better this gets. The scalability is really a very key thing here. You know, there's a trillion tons of olivine in the world. The oceans are very large. The, you know We've shown that as a society, we can move billions of tons of rock around the world if there's an economic incentive to do so. And so at a very fundamental level, we see this as an incredibly scalable solution, more so than other solutions we looked at. Of course, it relies on there being economic incentives.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I I would say from an agriculture perspective, farmers buy stuff to put on their land, like that's a process that already happens. There isn't necessarily an actor who's buying stuff to put in the ocean intentionally today. So you're having to find that economic lever in a different way, I think, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, of course, people are paying to move sand around and protect coastlines. And there is potentially a revenue stream there for us in the future. Although, to be clear, we're not earning revenue from that today. The business model, just like many carbon removal companies, relies on selling carbon credits. So we sell carbon credits to companies that want to remove their emissions. In in many cases, companies are taking responsibility even for their historical emissions, which, of course, the only thing you can do with those right now is remove them. You can't not emit them. And what we need to see happen in order for our approach to work at a planetary scale is we need to see governments stepping up and putting a price on carbon and making sure that the economic incentives are there to support carbon removal. But at our current and near future levels of scale, there's more than enough volume in the rapidly growing so-called voluntary carbon market to support our business.
1: And I think you were one of the original Stripe recipients of their carbon removal purchases. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Yeah. So Stripe, as I'm sure many listeners know, has been a real leader in supporting climate solutions. And one of the things that they've done, which is so effective, I think, is they have been buying from newer processes and technologies which are still subscale and are still expensive, but, but are high quality and that's really where we fit in and we're seeing increasingly other companies jumping into that space and being willing to buy what are currently relatively expensive carbon credits knowing that we will come down the cost curve and the come down the scale curve and the cost will decrease over time and what you'll be left with is this very efficient form of permanent scalable carbon removal. And I want to emphasize permanence. I mean, that's such a critical point here. You know, we need to be taking carbon from the short-term storage in the atmosphere and putting it into long-term geologic storage, whether that's in rocks or the oceans. At a fundamental level, we've taken it out of rocks in the form of fossil fuels, and it needs to go back geologically and permanently.
1: And are you able to share the pricing that Stripe purchased its credits from you and how that relates to kind of where you see the purchase price going over time.
2: So at the moment we are selling credits at $750 a ton and we expect that to come down actually fairly rapidly as we increase in scale. Our long-term target is to get to $35 a ton which for permanent carbon removal is is extremely cheap.
1: And what are the the big levers that that drive that price decrease for you?
2: A lot of the costs in our supply chain come down pretty naturally as you scale. So for example, shipping. If you want to order one ton of olivine from a supplier, that's going to cost you several hundred dollars to ship it. If you order 75,000 tons, then the costs drop by roughly an order of magnitude, just from placing a larger order. And there are a number of different aspects of our supply chain and therefore our cost bar, which have those kind of dynamics. So as we get bigger, it will get cheaper in a, in a reasonably automatic way.
1: And you all raised a round of seed financing, I think sometimes when I search for you, it's it's hard to differentiate what's the, the for-profit company and, and what's the sort of the historical nonprofit and the new non, you know sort of the, the nonprofit as it's evolved. but maybe explain a little bit about the seed financing that you've raised and kind of how're you're, how you're building the business and where you need help. If listeners are are listening and interested
2: so we raised just over 6 million in seed financing from investors led by a climate fund that many listeners may be familiar with called Prime Impact Fund and i know that Johanna Wolfson was was on the mcj podcast not too long ago so led by them but also other climate funds and climate focused super angels we are extremely focused on only taking money from climate investors who have who share our ethos and who have a very long-term investment horizon. We're not trying to deliver a quick buck back to investors and sell the company in three years. This needs to and should take a long time, and we think that when that's all done, we'll build a big business and deliver returns to investors, but patience is important. And then we've also raised a little bit more than that on the philanthropic side through the Coastal Carbon Capture Development Fund. And if anybody out there is interested in donating to that fund, then you're absolutely welcome to do so. It's a great way to support climate action.
1: And so it sounds like, you know, continuing to to scale the business and then talent. Like, are there are there talent needs that you have that are most critical right now for the company?
2: Yeah, we are hiring. We're, we're always hiring. One interesting area we haven't really talked about, but is uh, is an area we're actually going to be hiring in is, is the policy space. So, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act came out with a decent amount of good news for carbon dioxide removal. There's also a lot of state policies and potentially funding opportunities for, you know, for carbon dioxide removal and coastal resilience. So, we are going to be hiring in that space. So, you know, if you if you have expertise there and you're interested, then, you know, reach out to me. I'm on the MCJ Slack. In general, I would encourage people to follow us. We're all over social media. Check out our website, besta.earth, and follow the journey.
1: Tom, I so appreciate you coming on today. Thanks for sharing everything that you're doing with us. It's wonderful to hear the story and and the broad impact that you're you're aiming to have as a major effort in the carbon removal space. So thanks for your time.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast.
1: At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter, capital to fund companies that are working to address climate change and our member community to bring people together as yen described earlier
0: if you'd like to learn more about mcj collective visit us at www.mcjcollective.com and if you have guest suggestions feel free to let us know on twitter at mcjpod
1: thanks and see you next episode